Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to a very special edition of the DC Comics News Podcast. Um, with me, as always, is Seth and Kelly. Hello, my friends. Hey. Hello, hello. And we have an incredibly special guest, uh, comics writer, screenwriter, producer, and all-round good guy, Mr. Mark Guggenheim. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, we're all really excited to talk to you about crises, heroes, and people in spandex beating the living bejesus out of each other. But first of all, you'd like to say um, well done and congratulations on your escape from Arkham Asylum after the last <laughs> year's Elseworlds crossover. How were the accommodations there? Did they treat you fairly? Uh, they did, actually. You know, I, I have to say, ever since I stepped down as showrunner of Arrow, life just got a lot better. Like, just quality of life is so much, so much better when you're not producing 23 episodes of television a year. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm out and about. And uh, you, if you if you look carefully, you might even see me running around uh, Star City. Right. I have to watch that all again. Thanks. <laughs> so um, you're here. You've joined us. Uh, we've got a few questions, obviously, from our friend Brad as well, who couldn't make the show this evening. So he's got a couple of questions for you too, but we're going to kick off with uh, Seth and away you go, brother. Thank you, Mark. Uh, actually, this question comes from my nephew, Marco, who, when I told him I would be on with you and what you do, the, the first thing that came out of his mouth, and then he later reaffirmed it with a text to my wife today was, why, why did they take Hawkman and Hawkgirl off of DC Legends of Tomorrow? To which I could only imagine you get questions like that all the time. So I'll allow you your best crack at this one. Um, and I'm sure he'll be thrilled to hear your answer, whatever it might be. Good question. Um, you know, it felt like their story was told, you know. Um, and I will admit, like, I don't know if we always, you know nailed that story um it, it, it's a weird combination and it's it's going to sound kind of like you know bs but it, it happens to be the truth it's like sometimes you have these stories that like you tell it you finish it and it's like yeah this is this is not great like this is this we didn't quite hit all the beats or the the story itself was never working even from jump and you can either you know double down and like okay i'm gonna you know, I'm going to continue, not even continue telling the story. I'm going to basically tell a new story because I've already finished this story. Or you can kind of cut your losses and, and move on. And that's that's basically what we, we decided to do. Um, you know, we we basically, you know, found, uh, you know, we found ourselves in a situation where, like, we were thinking about season two and we we're like, what are we going to do with the Hawks? And we basically felt like, yeah, the story's been told, like, you know, they've they've recovered their, you know, they, they've recovered their memories. They've recovered their love for each other. And, um, you know, it, it's done. You know, it's kind of just done. Um, I will say this. I have a I have a great deal of satisfaction from the number of people who have been tweeting at me lately about, like, where are the Hawks or. Harkening, you know, basically saying like I really wish the show would go Legends would go back to the way it was in season one because I got to be honest when we were doing season one and doing even seasons two and three we as as writers and showrunners never felt the love for season one we never felt the love for 
you know, the Hawks. Um, it's great that, that people are coming out of the woodwork now to say, like, I miss these characters. Um, but, uh, yeah, we never really got that. Those people were very silent during season one of Legends, um, which, by the way, is is I, it's gonna, that sounds like a criticism. But the truth of the matter is, is that I actually think it's a real function of the way television works, which is twofold. Number one, you know, characters and concepts and story choices that looked good or bad two, three years ago, suddenly look completely different now with the benefit of, of hindsight or just a different perspective. Also, these shows in particular all live on longer in uh, on Netflix um, and in streaming. And as a result, you've got people who, you know, are coming to the first season of Legends or any of the other superhero shows now um, and going like, I don't know what people are talking about. I love season one. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, it's interesting. It's one of the reasons why I got to say, like, you know, I'm always asked how much influence does the audience have on the shows? And the answer is always not that much for a variety of different reasons, but that's one of them, which is, you know, it, it, it's just, you're constantly, you'd, if we were trying to please the audience at every turn or, or bring the audience into our process at every turn, we'd be trying to hit a moving target. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's just not feasible, especially when you're doing, you know, a, a long order or a medium order show where, you know, um, by the time the audience is even seeing it, you're at the end of your season, practically. Yeah, that's an amazing way of viewing the the process and what your sense of perspective is, not only during the moment of filming and production, but afterwards. And then, as you mentioned, because of the second life that comes through streaming, how that perspective so many years later is completely different from what it was not only during the process, but immediately after the airing and all the time in between. That's that's really amazing. Thank you, Mark. Great answer. No, I mean, I'll tell you, like, I'll give you an example, like season sure. three of Arrow. Um, like we were getting like amazing online reviews and great online uh, feedback, like the whole season, like the entire season, entire season, we get to the end of the season and we're like just to the end of the season. And we're also in high, that starts to go into hiatus. And suddenly the narrative online becomes the season sucked. And I'm like, but, but I have the reviews. I have the recaps. Like they didn't suck before. Like AV club didn't retroactively turn those A's into D's, uh, you know, um so ah, it, that's it's frustrating one of those, it's one of those funny things of producing television the modern age i can only imagine that's a great example thank you for for adding that on that's that's a great way of looking not only at marco's question but also uh, as you said uh through the process um i'm gonna go ahead and step back say thank you for that one allow the next question to come forward because you guys by the way are the most polite co-hosts ever <laughs> so nice to each other we've been doing this for so long now we're like a well-oiled machine it also helps that one of you is british so let's be honest everything you say sounds polite i am when did Very. that happen <laughs> it's uh, I, Steve, I don't want to ruin it for you steve you're british you're like richard Pryor. you're like you're, you're like you know richard Pryor in uh, stir crazy that's right <laughs> what do you mean i'm black need to do something about this. What's I'm really sure my age for that reference. <laughs> it's a great I'm reference. Thank you for <laughs> being the old man of the team. So, Kelly, what, what did you want to ask, Mark? All right. Hi, Mark. Um, let me think. So, 
my first question would be of all of the characters that you've written for comics, TV, anything, who would you say you identify the closest with, if anyone? Ooh, good question. Um, probably uh, there's a character named Eli Stone uh, of a sh- from a show of the same name that I co-created with Greg Berlanti. Um, and he he was a lawyer, a corporate litigator who found himself falling, you know, out of love with the law and getting very disillusioned and, um, you know, was a little bit neurotic um, and and had a little weirdness about him. Uh, And he's sort of the only character that I've written where I was basically writing myself. um, And he's remains the character I uh, associate the most with. Oh, wow. Nice. That's. Yeah, that's that's an interesting, um, I would say an interesting kind of character description, especially falling out of love with the law. Would you say there's a, kind of a specific aspect of your life that at the time you were writing it, you felt a little bit disillusioned with? Well, you know, it's funny, I was writing it, um, you know, by that point, I think I've been working in the business about like seven years. And, um, you know, but it, it in many ways, it it wasn't so much that it was happening at the moment. It was kind of autobiographical in the sense that like Eli, you know, loses his passion for the law and then discovers a passion for something else. Um, I was, I was definitely sort of channeling that experience. It just happened to be seven years after I personally experienced it. Very nice. I'm really glad you brought Eli Stone up because obviously looking back at your resume, um, one of many shows you've, contributed to and written for practice dragnet law and order csi um the list goes on and obviously what we haven't talked about and what some of our listeners may not know is you're also a very accomplished comic book writer thank you yeah i love love writing comics yeah and books novels everything from prose to screen to script um are there any uh, pros and cons to each medium and um did anything from writing comic books help with your narratives and with your screen screenwriting yeah you know i'll tell you you know um first of all you your first half of your question the are there pros the pros and cons every medium has pros and cons um and they're you, you have to write to whatever medium you're in. Um, and if you don't, I, not that you're going to do a bad job, but something, something's going to get lost. You know, um, you've got to, you know, I, I tend, I'm not very musical. I'm not musical at all, actually, but I, I have great uh, envy for people who are. And a lot of my writing analogies sort of fall into, you know, music. And it's kind of like every instrument has a pro and con. And if you're going to get the best sound out of that instrument, you've got to know sort of what the instrument does well and what it does poorly. Um, and the the benefit that I've had in terms of working in other you know different mediums is every medium is is a learning experience. It's an opportunity to learn something. And people always ask me, you know, like you do, like you know, well, have you learned anything in one medium that's been able to translate into another? And um, the answer is absolutely. Um, and the funny thing is, uh, you know, I, I, I very, very, very recently come to think of it, think of it as not the not the medium teaches you something. It's rather the experience. And I'll, I'll, I'll be specific. I'll tell you why. Um, I'm about to 
fly to Vancouver for um, prep on the very first episode of television I'm going to, I'm going to direct. And I've been doing a lot of reading and research and trying to educate myself about about directing. And the the thing that I've most sort of, you know, taken to heart is uh, advice about how to work with actors. And the funny thing is, is that I've been working with actors as a showrunner for 19 years now. I've been a showrunner for 15, but as a writer for 19. And I am realizing that. I've been doing it wrong. Um, you know, I'm learning a lot, uh, you know, in terms of putting on this director hat, I'm learning a lot about how to work with actors uh, by virtue of preparing to be a director. Um, and I, I think when you, you know, experience a, uh, you know, a different medium as a storyteller, you, you learn something just about telling stories. Um, you know, when I when I wrote my novel, um, I I learned a lot. Obviously, I learned the most about writing prose because it was my very first you know prose project. But I learned a lot in terms of just storytelling in general and breaking down a story. Um, and every every experience uh, is you know learning experience. I'm a, I'm a very big believer in that. Fantastic really really good and that leads to one of our, our colleague brad hi brad um who left a couple of questions for us to to ask you as well and he says being a writer who has you know traversed all those mediums what advice would you give to someone who wants to break into writing whether it be comics novels or tv and movies right write and read read and write um you know i think Let's talk about writing first. I think, you know, too many writers or, or too many writers who want to be writers um, don't write enough. You know, they you really this this is a job, you know, maybe, you know, more than others where you really learn by doing. And if you don't if you're not writing constantly, um, you're missing out on opportunities to to, you know, hone and refine your craft and really learn about your process. Um, similarly, uh, I feel very strongly that reading and experiencing, you know, whatever sort of medium you're interested in writing in, um, that that's really important. And I, I, I'm a very big believer that you learn as much from the good things, the good scripts, the good episodes, the good movies, as you do from the bad ones um, or vice versa. Um, you know, even reading a really bad script is going to be educational. If you're reading, uh, you know, I think it's it's martial arts or Zen. I think it's Zen Buddhism, like beginner's mind. You know, my, my advice is always read stuff with beginner's mind and, you know, leave yourself open to learning all of the lessons. Um, I feel like I read a lot of scripts just for fun. And um, I feel like I learn something every single time. Sometimes it's learning something to do and it's sometimes it's learning something to avoid but either way if you if you read with the right uh mindset you are going to uh you know learn something it's going back to the analogy you quite rightly said earlier with music and obviously with sports that the greatest sportsmen the greatest musicians get there because they practice 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 and keep honing their craft yeah uh, absolutely the example i always use you know, with musicians is like, 
you know, people say like, how many scripts do you need to start looking for an agent or something? And I'm like, well, it's not about that. It's about learning, um, you know, uh, learning the medium. Um, you know, when you first start out writing uh, any uh, screenplays, teleplays, whatever, you're you're spending so much time on the formatting. You're spending so much time on just the the rubric of screenwriting that I think it's very hard to do that and be fully creative at the same time. And the example I always use is, you know, there's sitting down at the piano and playing all the right notes and reading the music, but the real artistry comes in when all that stuff is second nature and you've so internalized the rubric of reading, you know, music that you can then play. And, and truly perform and actually make it your own. Uh, and I feel like it's the same thing with screenwriting. It's not until you've so, you know, internalized the medium of screenwriting that you can be fully creative and therefore fully bring to the scripts your individual voice, which is ultimately the thing that's going to get you the agents, ultimately the thing that's going to get you, you know, um, produced. It's ultimately the thing that's going to get you repeated work. It's It's not how well you have a command of screenplay format that's you know that's the that's the given you know no no one's going to hire you to play carnegie hall just because you can get through you know fleur de lis um without without skipping without making a mistake you're going to get to play carnegie hall if you can play fleur de lis in a you know inspired artistic manner and how'd you get to carnegie hall Practice, 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 practice. practice. Or, or, you know, you can now take an Uber. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if, well, yeah, I'm a lot more reliable than the yellow cabs. I did not say that. That was a complete slip. But thanks. Brilliant. Thank you. Seth, um, back to you, my brother. Mark, thank you for setting up my next question, because I read this great interview that you gave about the process and about how you were talking about young writers need to write more than one script. And that they very rarely nail it the first time, that they have to, you know, take time to one master the form, then master it. And then you added something great about the artistic expression. You said you have to hone your craft and then you have to discover what it is that makes your voice so unique that it has to be heard, which I thought was a really important thing to uh, to focus in on. If you were going to point to it with just the, the smallest amount of looking in the mirror, self-analysis, what makes your voice unique, either as you've been told or as you define it? And can you recognize a moment when either you discovered it or you'd gotten far enough with it that you could look back and say, I think that's around the time that I was starting to recognize it or maybe have that that greater understanding with it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I'll tell you, uh, there was a point I started out writing with my brother, Eric, Eric, uh, you know, is the showrunner of Magnum PI um, and the current one, not the old one. Um, <laughs> and uh, we wrote a bunch of scripts together and, you know, start off with like spec pick offenses and spec, um, you know, uh, law and order. And uh, we, then we did a feature and then we started writing separately because, you know, he was moving out to Los Angeles. And once he moved out there, we still were working on this one script together. We had an idea. Stop me if, if you think this is a good idea. I think this could be a, a show that could run for seven years or something. But it was about the senior staff at the White House. Um, and uh, it was called Executive Branch. 
Um, and believe it or not, we actually finished our draft like a week before Aaron delivered his draft of the pilot of the West Wing. Um, not great timing, but <laughs> I tell the story because I, I tell the story because um, it was during the writing of that script that I felt something unlock in me, and that I felt like I was expressing myself not just more freely, but I was expressing myself in a way that this is going to sound stupid, but that sounded like me and it didn't sound like anybody else. And it, it's the voices, the characters were speaking and sounded a lot like the voices that I hear in my own head when I'm talking to myself or whatever, like they just, they felt familiar. So I, you know, I think in terms of, you know, in a very, very, very broad 30,000 foot kind of way, um, your voice is really what you have to say in the world, you know, and sometimes it's very specific. Like, I think if you look at Eli Stone, there were a lot of elements of that show that weren't just autobiographical, but like represented what I felt from a philosophical perspective. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. What it comes down to is, are you are you saying something with your right? It's it's two things. It's are you saying something with your writing and how are you saying it? And both of those things need to be consistent with who you are as a person. And, you know, it's a it's it's a lot like, uh, you know, uh, Justice Potter's definition of pornography. You, you really can only you can't describe it, but you can know it when you see it. Um, and. It, it's you you know it you you it's a feel thing it's a but it, when you when it clicks I swear it clicks like I, I remember very specifically the moment you know that it it all kind of unlocked to me there is absolutely I believe in a, an aha moment um, like most skills uh, w that applies to writing where you go you know yeah I got now that's not to say like my evolution of my development as a writer didn't stop at that moment in fact it's just the opposite it really began at that moment um it was it was but it was only in that moment where i started to find a, a a synergy between what i was trying to say as a writer and what and the way i was saying it that reminds me of that great movie uh searching for bobby fisher yes don't move until you see it Right. And then there's the Samuel Jackson moment when he sees that Bobby or the young boy is recognized the moment. And he's like, there it is. And yeah. uh, it used to be a household joke with a roommate of mine. So I, I love that example there where you can just you, you see it, you know, at that moment, it, it, it all clicks. That's that. Well, that's, great you know, that that's the thing. Like it's you know, it's funny. It was it was it was um, Ben Kingsley um, who you know, said, you know, earlier in the movie that that was, you know, was such a great setup and payoff. But it was Ben Kingsley who earlier in the movie said, don't move, uh, you know, don't move until you see it. Um, and then it was Lawrence Fishburne who in the moment at the end of the movie sort of pays that off and goes, there it is. Um, You're right. I passed that off to Samuel L. Jackson in that moment. Thank you. I, uh, I mixed no, up no, my no, names. Um, <laughs> but, but like it, it was it. You know, it's funny, actually, what, what's so what's so great, actually, is, is that um, if you listen uh, to like uh, interviews that Josh Waitzkin, the subject matter of the movie, has done, um, he, he will talk about like the way his teacher, Bruce Pandolfini, played by Ben Kingsley in the movie, um, 
you know, sort of, you know, basically said, I'll, I'll make it simple for you and wipes the board clean. And again, it, it's, it's all about like that beginner's mind kind of mindset, you know, start, start from that very simple place um, and then build from there. I think we have a tendency to, uh, as human beings, overcomplicate things. And, and certainly human beings in the year 2019, I think that's especially true. Definitely. Don't move until you see it. Thank you, Mark. Great answer. Really appreciate it. Really, really good. So sort of sticking with the, uh, you know, this thread of script writing and actual writing in general, when it comes to writing comic scripts, would you say that it's a little bit more complex when it comes to having to work with an artist? Like, do you ever struggle with what details you should give in the script, what you should withhold? You know, how much do you actually trust the artist that you're working with? Well, that's a terrific question. Um, the, I'll take the, the last part first. Um, I think you always have to trust your artist. Um, my approach has always been, I'm not really writing a script. I'm writing a letter or an email to the artist. Um, unlike a, a screenplay or a teleplay where you're, you're writing something that needs to be consumed and understood and executed on by hundreds of people, the great thing about writing comics, one of the things I love about writing comics is it's really, yes, there's, you know, there's inkers and there's colorists and there's letterers and there's editors, but at the beginning, it's just a conversation between me and the artist. And I always say to the artist, I have like, I, I should really create a boilerplate thing, but I always rewrite it every time I write a new script. But I basically say, listen, I'm giving you the brain dump of what's in my head. Um, and, and this goes to the part of your question, like how specific do you get? I give them everything that I've got. And sometimes I have it really, really, really clear, like down to the camera angles and the, you know, the exact page layout even. Um, and other times I just know the number of panels and sort of the way I think it should kind of lay out. Um, and, but I always say to them, this is the information that I've got and I'm giving it to you. This is not a dictum. This is not a prescription. This is the way I'm currently seeing the page in my head. The great thing about comic books is, is that if the artist sees the page in a different way, different camera angles, more panels, less panels, you know, as long as they're telling the story that I'm trying to get out there, they can change anything they want. And I can adapt. And I always often do adapt once everything's lettered. So, um, you know, the lettering process is really an opportunity to sort of not just, you know, on a superficial level, rewrite the comic, but sometimes on a very fundamental level, change the story. Um, all I want is I want the artist to draw the best version of what they have in their head, not the mediocre version of what I have in my head. Um, you know, and I think I think that's the difference in philosophy with a lot of comic writers. Some comic writers are like, they didn't draw it exactly the way I described. And my attitude is, I would if, if an artist said to me, I can do it two ways. I can either give it to you exactly the way you described, but it's not going to be particularly good. Or I can do it my version and it's going to be awesome. Why wouldn't I go with the artist's version? That's awesome. And by the way, that also translates to live action. You know, actors, directors, all the people you work with. Like, I would always much rather, like, you know, go with the version that people can execute on at the highest level than what was exactly inside my head. And, you know, the, the advantage of prose, you know, when you write a novel, 
The great thing about a novel is it is just you. If you want to micromanage every little piece and have it be a pure distillation of your voice, then write novels. That's that's the medium for you. But the moment you incorporate one other human being, it becomes a collaborative effort. And when it's a collaborative effort, I think, you know, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the project. But let's be honest, this is just a very selfish thing. Um, you, you owe it to yourself to back the play that the your collaborator, your partner or partners can execute on the best. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's actually a very great way of looking at that. Thank you. No, thanks. Yeah, I, I've got to say, like, you know, I've been writing comic books now for, you know, 15 years, and I, I've thought a lot about this, and I've thought a lot about, you know, the nature of that relationship. And I, I'm a, you know, I've tried to, like, teach it to people, and I'm a very big believer that all forms of writing are an act of empathy. Um, but comic book writing in particular is an act of empathy because you're essentially going, I cannot draw. I am <laughs> going to you as someone who can draw and asking you to tell my story. I think you're a total dick if you don't write from the perspective of another human being has to be able to pull this off. Um, and, and you've got to put yourself in their shoes and, you know, imagine what it's like to be them and imagine what it's like to read the script. And I think a lot of comic book writers simply don't do that. Wow. Yeah. That's, I, that's something I wouldn't have, wouldn't have really thought of. I think looking at, I mean, when you read the finished comic book, you just see the way the story is actually executed. And I think that's probably a, a big reason why people tend to lash out back at the writers a lot when the story doesn't click, but it can really in a way be the writer's fault for not giving the artist that kind of room. So yeah, that's absolutely. Thank you. Well, my, my problem, and this is true for every single medium, because I'm a writer, if I don't like a movie, a TV show or a comic book, I, I blame the writer um, because that's my <laughs> sensibility. But the truth of the matter is sometimes it's not the writer's fault, but I, I do think because it all starts with the writer at the very least, the tone starts with the writer, even in features where, you know, the writer is, you know, really not respected and, you know, is, is sort of write something and then it gets handed off to a million people. I think it still starts off with, you know, you're setting a tone, you know, and, and like I said, writing is an act of empathy. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's an empathy just for the reader, you know, yeah. can, can, you know, can, have you written something in a way that the reader can, you know, consume and understand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great question, great answer. And as always with our uh, DC Comics News Hive Mind, it ties in perfectly with, with something that I've been thinking about with, as a writer, obviously, do you still get that huge thrill when you see the uh, promotional copies, your free copy arrive on your doorstep or pick up the comic book in the store and see what the artist has done or when an actor delivers a terrific performance and brings to life lines that you've written, do, do those things, when you see the finished product still thrill and excite you after this time in, the, in your career? Every single time, every single time. I, I will say at this point in my career, there's uh, 
you know, it it it's grown. It it gets more complicated by the fact that I now like I'm much more critical of my work now than I was when I first started was starting out. So there's an element of it's like, oh, but I, I didn't fix that or I, I didn't, you know, I, I oh that was a mistake. I should have I should have uh, made a different creative choice there. But um, the ideas are not mutually exclusive. They can kind of coexist. And, you know, there's all for as many times as like I'll kick myself for this creative choice or the way something turned out. Um, it, there's always the incredible thrill of I cannot believe this is my life. And I really can't. I, I don't. I it does not compute uh, to me that that I get to uh, to do this and, you know, see these television shows and see these movies and see these comic books, um, particularly the comic books, uh, you know, uh, come to fruition. That's really kind of amazing. And has it ever been a time where an artist has done something that you didn't even conceive or an actor has delivered the performance in a way that's totally elevated and enhanced everything you, you actually wrote originally? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that honestly, that's the best part. I think, you know, I probably write comic books for three reasons. Number one, the pure creative, you know, expression. Number two, the fact that I've loved comic books my whole life and I just love the medium so much. But the third is that special synergy that comes from that collaboration with an artist where you go, wow, that just all came together and, and they elevated my work and I hopefully elevated theirs. It's pretty, you know, you know, pretty amazing. Um, and it's a special thing. I, I love the collaborative, you know, synergistic nature uh, of working in television and comics where you're, you really are, you know, hopefully, you know, the best situations lifting, lifting each other up. Um, and that's, uh, it's a really special thing. That's, you know, after all these years, that's, that's the thing that, uh, continues to amaze me because it's still such a mystery as to how that happens. It's a kind of magic and alchemy. It is. Totally magic. That's that's a great way of putting it. That's exactly right. Brilliant. Uh, my colleague Brad again has uh, also given a question. You, you touched on it at the beginning with uh, Marco's great question about Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Um, but is there a particular character, specifically in the Arrowverse, that you found harder to write and then grown with, or vice versa, where you were really looking forward to writing but then uh, moved away in a different direction? Yeah, I mean, everybody sort of think about writing for comics. Sorry, for, sorry, we're doing certain comics. I, I messed up. Uh, think about both writing for comics. Absolutely, both. You start out writing. You start out writing the character, and at some point, you have to start writing the actor. And I don't mean the actor specifically, but you have to you have to write the performance that the actor is giving you, and. If you if you don't do that again, you're you're missing out on an element of the collaborative process because it's a collaboration with the with the actor. You know, you know, when I started out, everything, uh, you know, everything shot in Los Angeles and now nothing shoots in Los Angeles. So you're always engaging in this collaboration with with actors that you're not in the same city or even the same country with. Um, but that collaboration is happening over the course of a season. And basically it's like in a perfect world, you're writing to their performance as opposed to just writing a character in a vacuum. 
which means you're writing towards their strengths and away from their weaknesses, and you're writing in the voice that they're giving the character. Um, I, I will say, like, starting out, you know, in terms of the Arrowverse, the hardest character for me to write for, and I think this was true for Greg Berlanti as well, was, uh, you know, was Oliver Queen. Because, oh, wow. you know, if you look at, like, Eli Stone, which is very much Greg and mine voice, which is it's bantery and, and hyperverbal. That that's the way we write. And then of course you've got Oliver Queen on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, who literally in the pilot like says as few words as possible. Um, I always said like with Oliver Queen, we, we you know we create a character who we had you know no business writing because he's so different from our voice. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, like Felicity Smoke is. That that's you know when Felicity Smoke comes into the show in in episode three, um, I, in many ways it was just a uh, it, it, it was like a cry for help I think on, at some uh, on some level it was like can there please just be one character on this show who is easy to write, um, <laughs> you know it's uh it's it's interesting but I think you know you have to you you have to adapt you you know that's that's the thing like every day you get dailies that's why they're called dailies and you know you're getting the, the actors giving you the answers to the test you know they're, they're telling you basically in their performance you know what's working what's not working and you ignore that information and it's great information you you ignore that at, at your peril bless him oliver never was the best conversationalist was he so no God, no. I mean, it was, it was brutal, brutal. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, dear God. Um, yeah, writing for him was, was t- he was the most internal, he's probably still to this day the most internal character I've ever written. I, I think as Oliver has grown and evolved as a character, he's he's become much better at expressing himself. But those early years, damn, really, really hard. Speaking of Oliver and Felicity, Going in, when you started the show, was the goal originally to follow the comic book source material and have the relationship be Oliver and Laurel Stroke Diner? And then did the chemistry and obviously uh, Emily Bet-Ricard's performance then totally sway you and move you away? Because that's the one thing that fans are still really in heated conversation about is should it be always Black Canary and Green Arrow? Where did um, Felicity come from? And then you get the other camp who shipped Felicity from the very beginning. How did that whole change happen? Or, or did was that originally part of the, the process when you started? Well, it's funny. Um, you, you see, like I said, you're very polite because, you know, you say it's, it's become quite heated. Um, well, you know, it's like, look at my Twitter feed. have to be diplomatic. Like, uh, no, it's all, it's all good. Um, you know, here's the thing. Obviously, in the pilot, we established that Oliver and Laurel have this romantic history. And yes, the intention was that Laurel was going to be Oliver's love interest, um, certainly throughout season one. And and yes, we we, you know, named Laurel Dinah Laurel Lance after Dinah Lance of the comic, uh, who, yes, Oliver and Dinah in the comic ultimately do, uh, you know, ultimately do get married. Um, There's a couple of things that uh, happened along the way, one of which was, yes, Emily came along and she was only supposed to be a one off. Um, You know, Felicity was only supposed to be an episode 
episode three, but we loved uh, Emily's performance so much. We're like, oh, let's put her in episode four and let's put her in episode five. We kept writing to her because, again, you've got to like you got to respond to what you're getting from from your cast. And one of the things we started to really get was there was incredible chemistry between Stephen and Emily that we felt was undeniable and that we had to write towards. And where I part ways with the comic book fans, to be totally honest, is everybody, you know, who's on my Twitter feed, who's sort of talking about that uh, stuff, treats Oliver and Dinah as if they were Lois and Clark. And I sub- I don't subscribe to that belief. Um, I, I don't feel like that romance between Lois between Lois and Clark is. At, I'm sorry. I don't feel like that romance between Dinah and Oliver in the comics is as, quite frankly, sacrosanct as the relationship between Lois and Clark. Um, and I, I say this as someone who is a lifelong comic book fan, and I really do challenge anybody to, uh, you know, to, to prove that they're a better or a more passionate fan of comic books and superheroes than I am. Um, but it's, you know, I think in the comics, it just established a certain relationship that we didn't a feel as beholden to in the lot in the live action show, but also at the end of the day, we're not writing comic book characters. We're writing live action characters who are embodied by real men and women who have different degrees of chemistry with each other. Um, and you've, you've got to, you got a right to again. It goes back to everything I was saying earlier. You got a right to what you're seeing on the screen. Great answer. Thank you. Brilliant. Like that one. Seth, what, what, where do you want to go next, brother? I'm going to come back for one more writing process question because it's one that when I came across it, um, just as again, just as I was reading some interviews uh, that you've given and that I could glean from. I loved coming across this idea that you suggested, which is that you will uh, either read a script or watch a movie and you refer to it or maybe even just uh, read a couple of pages of something that you call the tuning fork, something mm-hmm. that's similar yeah. to something that you're working on. Yes. And I love that because I remember in the 90s, I was a big fan of reading uh, the Flash series where Wally West was growing into his own. And I think it was right around number 79. I remember reading a back uh, reader's page. And the letter from the writer talked about what inspired him while he was working on that script. And he said it was listening to music from the Magnificent Seven, uh, the soundtrack, the original soundtrack. And I was really moved by that idea because it was the first time I had considered writing to something that inspired me in that way, like using music as a soundtrack for something I'm working on because of how I know it inspires me. So when I heard this idea about tuning fork, and how you would either read a script or watch a movie. I was curious if you could give us an example of either some form that you've done that you used a specific piece, whether it was a usual piece or not, or if there's uh, something that's kind of a go-to for you, where you can always kind of rely on uh, connecting with what you're trying to do and receiving that, that matching tonality from the tuning fork. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, when... We were working on the first season of Arrow. Uh, I would typically use the Dark Knight trilogy as my tuning fork. Um, you know, because we, we were really trying to sort of capture that. Um, then there are just, quite frankly, there are just screenplays that I really, really, really like as pieces of writing that inspire me. Um, uh, Tony Gilroy's draft of Michael Clayton. 
uh, is a, a big influence on my pro style, um, particularly the way I write action, believe it or not, even though it's not a very action heavy movie, uh, you know, the, the rhythms of that script, um, are something that, you know, really, really sort of speak to me. Um, uh, Aaron Sorkin's draft of the social network, uh, huge, you know, influence on me. And I have to be very careful, like uh, Sorkin's stuff, um, I can't always use as a tuning fork because um, if I just read a little bit of his dialogue, I will start writing in his pattern. Um, and, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. and there are times where I'm doing that very intentionally. Like, you know, uh, there are, there are scripts where I'm like, I want this to feel very Sorkin esque. Um, but there are other scripts that I really, you know, don't want to do that. Like I, I can't do that on arrow, for example, that would, you know, um, you know, that that would not be disastrous, but it it wouldn't feel like the show. Yeah, it actually reminds me of the moment when uh, Oliver became the mayor and there was a quip from him saying, hey, guys, what are we going to do except convince people that I, you know, basically binge watched the entire <laughs> series of the West Wing in order to prepare for this role? And I thought to myself, you mentioned the West Wing on Arrow. I'm I'm sold. I'm I'm already in there. <laughs> and I thought I, that was a, a really fun reference. Thank, I'm a huge West Wing fan. Uh, I the spec that basically got me into the business uh, was a West Wing uh, script. And, really? Uh, That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it got me a lot of work. It got me my first three gigs at least. I would love to read that script. I, I'm a huge you know, fan. I would I would love to see can. how it fit. Hell really? yeah. You can. <laughs> actually, if you look Bitter Script Reader on Twitter, he or she did a database of like professional writers and their specs. Um, and I sent it. Uh, so it's it's available. It's a great it's a great database. It's like all these, you know, like, you know, professional writers and showrunners and show creators and what uh you know, what their, um, you know, first, you know, couple of scripts were, um, back in the days when, when people wrote specs and not original samples. Um, so it's, it's fun stuff. And yeah, I, I submitted it. It's, uh, it's, a it, it's the A story is about, um, the, basically the Teamsters shut down the country, um, to protest NAFTA. They go on sort of a, a nationwide strike. Um, and, uh, just, chaos ensues interesting because i do remember an episode where he threatens to federalize and nationalize the uh, trucking industry this actually came out after yeah, that episode came out after i wrote my episode in the middle of season one and i think uh the episode you're referring to was like season two or three um mm -hmm. so my mine was actually inspired believe it or not uh when i moved out here uh, I was living in Boston at the time, and I, I flew out of New York, um, where my parents live, and I was driving, like, all my possessions uh, from Boston to New York at, like, you know, one or two in the morning, and at one or two in the morning, the only, the only you know, vehicles that are on the highway are trucks, and I passed by this truck who, on, a, like, one of its mud flaps um, had the statement, without us, the country shuts down, or something along those lines. And I'm driving past and I read that. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, um, oh, wow. That bing, became, bing, 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 bing. 
Yeah, that it was really great. That became the A story, and uh, and and the B story was this idea that I had had uh, ever since you know, during while I was in law school. I read something about Antarctica and the unique nature of Antarctica, and I thought, oh, that'll make for a good movie one day. And it turned out to be a, a good B story for Josh Lyman to deal with in uh, in my West Wing episode. That's going to be a lot of fun to find and read. I can um, with unabashed pride mentioned that i've gotten my wife to watch this series with me about eight times all the way through from first season to last and it's one of my favorite examples of like see that's a brilliant writing moment see that right there and (laughs) oh there's there's an there's a line in uh there's a line in the arrow series finale where i i'm basically doing my best to uh rip off a line or homage a line um, or channel a line from Toby in, in Excel Sestio, the uh, Christmas episode in season one. Um, Which line is it, if you don't mind me asking? Because uh, that's I, a beautiful episode. It's, um, it's when, at the end, when Bartlett says, you know, this will bring more people like this out of the woodwork, and Toby says, I can only hope, sir. Uh, that's right. With the veteran who had his jacket and he got yes. the military funeral for Oh, that's a great reference. Yes. And I love that inspiration of we can only hope it challenges things. We can only hope they come out of the woodwork. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you, Mark. That's a that's a gift to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, probably more than a few. Uh, it's probably more than a few times I've I've swiped or, or borrowed from the West Wing uh, over the eight years of Arrow and the 19 years of, of writing. Well, as I've always heard and repeated often, good writers steal and great writers steal often. Correct. Uh, <laughs> and, well, actually, it's funny if you if you listen to Aaron Sorkin and Sam Seaburn, and I think mm-hmm. it's, I think it's uh, 401 or 402. Um, you know, uh, uh, great uh, good writers borrow, great writers steal outright. Yes, I remember that uh, one. I'm a um, very big believer in that. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to stop hogging your attention for just a minute and, and say thanks for a great answer to a, a really fun question series there. Um, thanks, guys. I'm going to go ahead and step back and let the next person ask a question. Thank you, Mark. Great, great talking about West Wing right there. <laughs> Every writer I've been interviewed has always said steal and steal from the best. Kelly, what's your <laughs> next question? So actually, very similar question. Um, would you say there's a comic book that you could point to that when you, you know, when you read it, when you got a copy of it, you were like, this is what I want to do. This is the, the future for me. Well, that's an interesting question because I don't think I ever dared to dream I could write comics. Um, and I actually didn't end up even writing comics until I was like five years into being a screenwriter and, you know, being a television writer. Um, so I think probably one of the things my, my childhood suffered from uh, was was a real lack of imagination or a lack of uh, dream uh, because I, I never imagined that I could do this stuff. Uh, I will say, like, you know, one of my earliest memories was just flipping through a comic book, um, you know, before I could even read. And my mother, like, you know, thought I was like a savant. I'm like, no, I can't just read. I'm just looking at the pictures. Um, and. You know, but in terms of like a comic book that just blew me away on a seismic level, it was Uncanny X-Men number 139. It was the first appearance of Kitty Pride, not the first appearance of Kitty Pride in the comics, but the first appearance of Kitty Pride as a member of the X-Men. It was the welcome to the X-Men Kitty Pride. Hope you survived the experience issue. 
Um, and uh, to go back to one of your earlier questions, if I, you know, if I had to pick another character apart from Eli, who I relate to the most in terms of, of voice and everything, uh, believe it or not, it would be Kitty. Um, and uh, that just that comic, you know, just rocked my world in, in such a profound way. Um, again, never, never in such a way that made me think that I could actually do this for a living, um, but uh, in a way that just made me, you know, fall even deeper in love with the medium of comics than I already, you know, had been. Wow, so that's fantastic. And was what specifically about Kitty made you kind of connect on that level? Um, you know, I think it was a combination of the fact that she's Jewish um, and certainly at the time and even now the number of Jewish superheroes is pretty, pretty small. Um, there's uh, she's smart, but neurotic. Um, she's, you know, got a, like a, a fun humility to her uh, that, that really spoke to me. Um, and I just, she interacted with the X-Men in a way that I imagine myself interacting uh, with, with real life superheroes. And the funny thing is, is like, if I sort of project outward to what my life became, where, you know, so much of my life uh, is working with people who I never thought I'd get the chance to work with and constantly wondering like, A, how did I get so lucky? And B, will I ever live up to, um, you know, these people? Uh, it turns out you can you can find a lot of those moments, a lot of those emotions back in that very first, you know, you know, issue of the X-Men that I read. Wow. Yeah, that that is a fantastic connection. That's great. Wow. And actually, it's funny you mention Kitty Pride specifically, because I think one of I, I don't know if this is what got me into superheroes per se, but I do remember as a kid watching that uh animated x-men series from i think it was the 90s yeah and she there there's that scene where they first introduce her and she fades through the floor in her house yeah. yes. and that is just burned into my memory and I, I remember as a little kid being terrified that i was gonna fade through the floor and then also a little disappointed that i never did but that's, yeah. that is a fantastic <laughs> connection that was it's funny that was you know taken directly from the comics um her first appearance and Actually, the way John Byrne drew that was was so great for the medium of comics because he, you know, he had these two sort of horizontal panels, um, and you know, she's in her upstairs, she's in her bedroom upstairs in one panel, and she, you know, is suddenly in the living room in the very next panel, um, and it was a great way of again using the medium of comic books to tell a particular story beat um, in a particular way, and I actually revisited that moment uh in one of the issues of x-men gold that i wrote um because that, that that moment in a different medium made the same you know profound impression on me yeah, yeah that, that must be a really uh satisfying thing to be able to revisit something that um spoke to you in one medium in a different one that must be a lot of fun uh, it's great i'm i'm super super lucky uh i you know i yeah you have to understand there's an element of me that goes i i had a life as a lawyer beforehand, I was my fifth year of practice when I left. And uh, there's a big part of me that still thinks that there's the real me is still back in Boston practicing law um, <laughs> and that I'm living someone else's life. <laughs> that that would be an interesting comic book, honestly. 
Um, yeah, it's 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 weird. It's 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 so 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 strange. The two lives of Mark Guggenheim. You heard it here <laughs> first, folks. I'm not sure people are all that interested in one life of Mark Guggenheim, but uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. Absolutely. Well, thank you. That was a great answer. Yeah. Kitty Pride's one of the best written, best realized teenage characters in the history of comics, as far as I'm concerned. And um, so, yeah, couldn't agree more. That, that's brilliant. I have to ask, though, obviously, we've spoken about all the things you have written, but you were due to take over Action Comics at one mm-hmm. point. And wow. Were that's there? A I'm a huge fan. I don't know if that's come across. I, 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 that's why I'm up at uh, 2 a.m. doing this uh, interview, and I've got to get up in the work in the morning. Oh, boy. I, yeah, so don't, don't even worry about it. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. But you were due to, to take over action, but were there any other projects that you were lined up to do or really anxious to do or still are that maybe got away from you or that you'd like to go back and complete one day? Oh yeah. Um, ooh, which ones? Uh, you're talking sort of like the ones that got away. Uh, oh, yeah. you know, I would say I did the one that, comes to mind immediately is um, a number of years ago. This is actually during the first season of Arrow. Uh, I wrote a uh, a movie uh, version of Perry Mason for Robert Downey Jr. Um, wow. It ultimately didn't come together. Uh, but that was a great deal of fun. It was a very, 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 very challenging script to write. Um but, you know, to write for Robert, to be in story meetings for Robert was was a real thrill. Um, and uh, now Robert's producing the, you know, the Perry Mason miniseries with, uh, for HBO with Matthew Reese. Um, so uh, that, that was one of them. Um, you know, the, yeah, this, this, especially like on the future side where it's so hard to get a movie made. There's a lot of movies you uh you know you write and they just sort of go off into the uh ether and, and never get made um because everyone's too busy ironically making superhero movies these days uh but you know i think you know, in terms of like characters i would love to revisit i never i i when i was writing spider-man at marvel um i was I, I, especially in the latter half of my involvement with that book, I was very distracted. I was running a new show that was very, very time consuming. And I just, I never quite felt that I was able to nail that character to my capability. Um, you know, I feel like I've got, I, I have better Spider-Man stories in me. Uh, and one day I'd love to revisit that character. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very hard. Like very rarely do I think back on anything and think that uh, it was, you know, particularly well executed or that it couldn't have been improved upon. I think this is sort of the the curse of being a writer um, is you're constantly thinking back to all the things you wish you had done differently. Um, and I've, you know, I, I've struggled to make my peace with that over the years. Um, but that's you know that's the truth and you know i guess the way you make your peace with it is you just go okay you know what i'm always going to feel this way (laughs) um i'm always going to feel this way and there's nothing i can do about that and you kind of just learn to live with it um and you also kind of realize that when you write um you're really putting something out into the world and then once you do it's no longer yours it belongs 
to the audience. Um, and I, you know, and, and the way I know this to be true is I gain a lot more satisfaction uh, from, you know, as a fan than I do as a, you know, I, I love writing, but I love experiencing other, other people's great writing more. That's a really interesting idea. And I have to wonder how many times I've had a similar thought or anyone else uh, on this conversation or listening has had that thought where you can enjoy your writing and then experience someone else's and find uh, that, that pleasure that you're deriving from, from what they're giving you that that gift that they've put out into the world, as you said. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, like I, I gotta say like, as again, I love writing, love it, love it, love it. It's I, I would write for free. I get paid to take notes. Um, but, you know, <laughs> the joy I get from like watching Watchmen right now, you know, so exceeds uh, any sort of thrill I get, you know, at the page. Um, you know, or I guess maybe it's maybe a better way of putting it is it's a, it's a different type of thrill. But I think it's a it's a very important visceral thrill to sort of keep in mind. Um, and the truth of the matter is, this sort of gets back to some of the other stuff we were talking about, about tuning forks and you know and whatnot. But like, I think when you're a writer, you're you're in a dialogue with culture. You're in a dialogue with other writers. Um, and you know, it's just like me putting in West Wing homages or references in Arrow. Um, and actually like one of my all time favorite shows is, is wise guy. And, um, I, the number of wise guy Easter eggs in arrow, um, and even legends of tomorrow, uh, can really not be overstated. Um, and you, you know, you don't even know sometimes a lot of times how your writing is being affected by all the other forms of writing you're consuming. Whether you know it or not, it's absolutely happening. There's no way to avoid it. Seth, what was your next question? I'm torn between my next two because I, I had one in mind, but then as we were, you know, talking about that that moment you were describing where you you can recognize something that you've done and, and look back and, and realize that once it's done and you put it out into the world, it's it's out of your control. But so often now with these other platforms available, there's always the chance to retell a story. And I was curious, after your experiences with Green Lantern and Green Arrow, have you ever considered about retelling one or maybe those characters together in a show on DCU or HBO Max uh, where you could have Green Arrow and Green Lantern together or tell a different type of story about either of those characters on a, on a different platform where maybe the opportunities are available that that aren't through network or through other platforms and yeah. if that's other way sorry you're, you're already <laughs> to answer me <laughs> uh i didn't mean to cut you off um, you're fine you're fine you know yeah i mean uh you have to understand like with arrow I, we, we just like on friday locked the series finale um so i think with 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 respect to Oliver Queen, my instinct is to not revisit that character anytime soon um, because his story is told, you know, at least my version of his story is told. Um, I don't think I have anything more to say with the character at this point. Um, I would hope that that changes. 
Um, but, you know, for now, I feel like I've kind of said it, you know, Green Lantern is, uh, Green Lantern's a different kettle of fish. That was a situation where, you know, I was very, very, very pleased with the script that Michael Green and Greg Berlanti and I wrote together. And then we basically lost creative control over it. And, um, it's, and so as a result, that particular character, Hal exists in my mind in this very weird way where on the one hand, the, the scripts, the drafts that we wrote, I feel like that's, that's the best version of the character that we were capable of doing. Um, but then it's sort of, you know, that feeling is affected by the execution and the changes, quite frankly, that were made to our draft. Um, so it's how, revisiting it i i think i maybe i i i don't know no uh, pressure don't, they don't want to put you on the, the spot exception like of like oh no 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 i just i want to answer the question honestly uh you know with respect to the you know with respect to visiting things or not visiting things i've kind of learned to take things as they come um, in the sense that, you know, for the most part, unless it's an original idea, for the most part, like if I'm meant to write, you know, a particular character, um, those opportunities will naturally occur. Um, and if I'm meant to revisit a particular character, those opportunities will naturally occur. And um, I probably I'm just a happier person for just having accepted, you know, the, the wills of either the universe and or Hollywood in terms of like, you know, if I'm meant to revisit Green Lantern, that opportunity will present itself. You know, if I'm meant to revisit Green Arrow, that opportunity will present itself. I, I love hard traveling heroes and I love, you know, the Green Arrow, Green Lantern relationship. Um, and I would, if I were to do it, I would certainly want to play into the politics and the political differences um, far more than we ever did on either the Arrow TV show or the Green Lantern movie. Um, but that gets into a whole other conversation about how political can you actually get these days in television. Uh, I would submit the answer is not very political. Agreed. Agreed. And I really appreciate the as you said, you, you answered the question honestly. You were working out the answer as you were describing it to us. It's, it's not like something you had stashed away. And no. I really appreciate the, uh, the genuine thought and authenticity. So thank you for talking about both of us. Really appreciate mm-hmm. it. Very cool. So kind of going off of that, is there a, has there ever been a project that you sort of came to with the best intentions and then willfully sort of set down or stepped away from because you felt that, you know, you, your head wasn't really in it or you weren't really clicking with it the way that you wanted to. No, <laughs> um, there have been a lot of times I thought about it. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, is that I'm really stubborn um, and I'm not a quitter and it's very hard for me to, it's very hard for me to, you know, admit defeat. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really stubborn. Um, so there have been times when I should have stepped away from things uh, and haven't, if I'm being totally honest. 
that's, that's good though. It's, it's an admirable quality, I think. It's 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 a double like many things in life. It's it's very double edged. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I need to ask, obviously, that you've well with DC in particular, because you're with the DC Comics News podcast. I most closely associate you with Aquaman and oh, with the Justice you. Society. Absolutely. And obviously we had Hawkman and Hawk Girl in the Arrowverse and we've imminently um, waiting to see Stargirl. And now that it's been confirmed that she's not just going to debut on DC Universe, it's actually going to be part of the CW lineup as well. Um, are there any other characters from either the JSA or from the DC Universe that you still think need to appear on TV that haven't yet that you're dying to get your hands on? Um, you know, it's funny. I have always, this is a deep cut, um, but I have always been of the very strong opinion that Night Force uh, would make a terrific television show. Yes. Um, nice. And I've, I've talked to Marv Wolfman at length about it, um, and I think it'd be, It'd be really, really, uh, it'd be very, very cool. It's just, it, it, I love that comic book growing up, and it's always struck me as, um, you know, just a no-brainer for, for television. I would watch the living hell out of that, absolutely. And with Marv, of course, you have to bring up the question of the crisis on Infinite Earths and how daunting or exciting or both is logistically pushing pulling together something like that or like elseworlds together i mean the cast is unbelievable the easter eggs how did that all come about and how hard and satisfying is it um incredibly hard just as satisfying um and it came about like piece by little piece um you know the story that we had developed was very much by design meant to be sort of modular and create opportunities for us to bring in various characters from elsewhere in the DC universe. Uh, going into it, we knew that it couldn't just be crisis on CW Earth. It has to be crisis on infinite Earths. Um, but literally every single Easter egg, every single shout out, every single cameo, every single guest star, was a process and um you know some of them came together easily and others really didn't um and you know there are some days you're up and some days you're down and it's very much an emotional roller coaster and um i'm still you know fighting fights uh for things in hours four and five um that air in january the i'm i will say i am amazed at what we ended up with it far exceeded my wildest expectations um but the it's like the old adage about like how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time um we didn't <laughs> go into it with like you know okay we're gonna get all these people it was okay who do we go after first okay now now who now who and it's just one step at a time one step at a time one step at a time and and just being really really dogged about it um you know i in particular was incredibly stubborn and uh pissed off a lot of people along the way and you know uh 
burned some relationships, um, stressed out, um, you know, stressed out others. Um, not, yeah, not, not, uh, an easy process, but worth it. Um, because for me, you know, crisis is such a holy text that if the choice was piss off, not piss off people or, or not do crisis as good as I thought it could be, um, I decided I would, you know, pretty much every, every relationship was, uh, was, was negotiable. Um, as, as long as I, uh, you know, was making sure that, that we were doing the best version of this, uh, that we were capable of. And, you know, we have a lot of other, a lot of other limitations, um, most of them financial, um, to work with. I, I wanted to free ourselves up as, as much as humanly possible. But that's why you've got the two extra chapters of the Arrowverse Crisis appearing in comic book form in the two 100-page giants yeah, with exactly. Marv Wolfman. I mean, that blew my mind. How did that come about? Um, that came about basically. Uh, Dan Evans is a VP at, at DC that I've been working with for the last many years, um, and he's sort of my day-to-day sort of contact person slash partner in you know in comics and in sorry in you know at DC Comics. I should say. And um, I I had this idea very early on that we this was there was an opportunity here to use the medium of comic books to get at characters and concepts that uh, we couldn't do either for financial or logistical reasons in, in television. Um, and I had a meeting, uh, you know, over at D.C., and I forget who pitched it, but someone pitched out, well, what if you were to write this with Marv? And the funny thing was, I wasn't going to write it at all, um, you know, but I uh, the opportunity to, to write with Marv was something I, I certainly couldn't uh, pass up. And it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, and, and we we just had a blast and we ended up doing two stories. One is sort of like the quote unquote main story, um, you know, basically fills in uh, a, you know, a significant piece of backstory from, um, you know, from our, you know, our two, um, but also a backup story that basically was just something that, you know, struck Marv and I as, as just, uh, uh, you know, it's to do a story about as many Lex Luthers as we could uh, include, uh, you know, fighting against as many supermen and superwomen as we could include. Um, and that was, uh, really, really satisfying. Um, we, we had a, we had a fun time, uh, you know, and I think, uh, it's an enjoyable, uh, it's an enjoyable, you know, uh, companion piece. Um, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, one of the things that the original crisis did so effectively was, it, uh, you know, had not just the 12 issues, but the, the tie-in comics. Um, it was nice to actually do a tie-in comic that, you know, was, you know, as much of a connection with uh, our version of Crisis as the original tie-in comics were with theirs. So cool. I can't, cannot wait to read those and obviously to catch up with the final half of Crisis on Infinite Earths on TV. Thanks, Mark brilliant seth you go 
Yeah, I was curious about something that um, you tweeted back on August 28th, that you were working on a secret project for DC Comics and that it was torturous not to talk about it. And I was curious either, one, if there was a bribe to get you to spill a detail that would potentially be fun, or two, if there was a detail you could give regarding that project that would sort of let people know or send a true rabid fan into a bit of a tizzy without really getting DC mad at you or, you know, giving away anything too substantive. Uh, well, I can tell you exactly what uh, the project is, but I'm, this bribe thing is very intriguing to me. I know. That's the fun part. Um, no, it, actually, it was the Crisis Time comic. Okay. Okay. Because um, I believe that there was a connection, and I was like, look, I'm not on Twitter enough to catch up, so I want to see whether or not uh, there's some information regarding that that tweet that, that we can glean from this. Uh, and then because I knew there was a possibility to either be no answer to this question or one as succinct as that, I wanted to ask about your uh, IMD profile, IMDB profile photo. It appears that oh, yeah. in, in that picture that you're surrounded by a couple of uh, death strokes. Uh, and yeah, that uh, that's funny. I like to say that that's the only good photo I've ever taken. Um, <laughs> that was uh, on the set of Arrow 223, which was the second season finale. And those are the Mirakuru soldiers, uh, the, the mercenaries that Slade Wilson had uh, injected with the Mirakuru serum. Um, and I just happened to be on set. Uh, and the still photographer we had there that day is like, I've never taken a photo of you, um, you know, for the show. And she suggested posing with the Mirakura soldiers. And um, it was kind of fun because I, I liked the photo. And then uh, production for my birthday the next year sort of sent me this beautiful, like blown up version of the photo in a frame. Um, and uh, it's that was, that was now a long time ago. <laughs> um, you know, that was, that was a good seven years ago. So I was curious, is that the toughest photo you've ever taken? Cause that's the toughest looking photo I've seen in a while. And there's something about not only you standing next to them, but suddenly it, it looks like you grew a couple of inches just in that photo. Like you become a much more menacing, powerful figure. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a tough photo. That's a, that's a intimidating photo. You know what I love? Um, when I was running Carnival Row, um, a bunch of the writers and some of the support staff admitted that they uh, had IMDb'd me and uh, <laughs> saw that photo and all thought, oh, my God, he's so mean. <laughs> I'm like, this is the best photo ever. This photo just keeps giving and giving. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That's really great. I was wondering about that because when I saw that, I was like, Oh, this could be a really interesting conversation. I wonder. And then I saw some others where I thought, okay, maybe I, maybe I, you know, read him wrong off that first take. So glad to know I'm not the only one. And uh, love that photo. When I first pulled it up, I was like, hands down, that's a tough photo. That that's a great shot. I love it. It's my. It is my the only photo that of me that I look at that I don't cringe at. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That was a great answer and a good story to go with it. I've had to open up that tab in a in a different browser. And uh, yeah, would you interview this writer? Um, <laughs> wow, that's that's scary. Yeah, I look, it's like I'm like, this is I know I love it. Um, this is cool. Pick. Yeah, it makes me very happy.
but it's 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 great. Um, two death strokes and a mark, right bang in the middle. Um, <laughs> wow, that's a death stroke of genius. I'm going to shut up now, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> so, if if you could be any DC character, I was I was going to say superhero, but villain, superhero, anyone for 24 hours, which Ooh. one would you pick? You know, I it's such a it's such a lame answer. Um, it, you know, I'm embarrassed to be this lame, but uh, I'd probably have to go with Superman just because the whole flying thing. You know, like who who wouldn't want to do that? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and and Superman's cool. Uh, yeah, I, I I I'm embarrassed at my own lack of imagination, but uh, I'm gonna gonna go with Superman. Oh, that's a, that's a great answer. It's an admirable answer. I think, uh, yeah, flying and then the heat vision would be fun. I don't know that I would be responsible with it, but I oh, think that would be a really fun thing to yeah. try. I know I would not be responsible. Uh, it, would, <laughs> it would be bad, um, but that probably would be fun, you know, um, you know, to, to be that irresponsible. Uh, who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great answer, actually. It's, I like that one. Who needs a microwave when you've got heat vision? Cold yeah, lunch. True. That's Just true. look at it and it's warm again. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely uh, brilliant. Pretty cool. So obviously a lot of fans are losing their minds. Um, when I say a lot of fans, I mean me. Um, at seeing Kevin Conroy finally appear as a live action Batman and having the return of Tom Welling as Clark Kent and were there any you never, ever thought you'd get back on screen that you did and were pleasantly surprised by? And are there still a couple that you missed and you wished um, you could get them on board? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's still a whole bunch of people, um, you know, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who we didn't, uh, you know, who we weren't able to get either for scheduling reasons or I couldn't, uh, you know, get the actor uh, to agree or, or you name it. But I have to say we far exceeded my wildest expectations. Um, you know, in terms of actors who were available or affordable, um, we, we got almost everyone uh, that I ever could have hoped for, certainly more than I ever expected. Um, you know, there's always, you know, there's always one that got away or, you know, two that got away. But, um, you know, I, we you know, when we went into this, I said, let's, let's think of a hundred cool things. And even if we only do 50, we've done 50 cool things. And, um, you know, we, we really, uh, you know, we're incredibly, incredibly fortunate. Um, and there are still plenty of surprises, uh, still left to come. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're not done yet. Yes, that's what I wanted to hear. So there are still some that haven't leaked that we can look forward to. Yes. Oh, color me happy. Mm-hmm. Seth, what did you want to say? I was really intrigued uh, by the concept of uh, Eli Stone when I was reading about you and just doing a little bit of research. Where can someone find if they want to, you know, tune in for just a little bit to what was available? Is it? streaming somewhere that we can pick it up is it it's not how sad is that that it is frustrating on, it used to be on itunes um and i don't think it's on itunes anymore um and uh yeah it's um 
it's it's just I I don't know why um, it just is not living out there the way I would like it to. Um, but uh, who knows? You never know. Um, Understood. Okay, that could change. Yeah. Um, then let me just add this question, if you don't mind. Uh, another one about your writing process. You mentioned that before you go to bed, you your head hits the pillow and then you write a scene. Yes. And then usually that's the scene that you will write in the morning. And it's like you're pre-writing it. That's not the first time I've come across the idea of using time, space, sleep, dreams to to uh, work through the process. Did you discover this on your own? Were you inspired? How did this become part of your writing? That's a good question. Um, I've been doing it for so long. I'm trying to remember what the genesis of it was. Um, I, I don't know. Um, to be totally honest with you, I, like I said, it's just, it's been a part of my process, you know, you know, for a very, very, very long time now. And I just, uh, just sort of became, it became normalized to me. Um, you know, it's funny though. I will say like, I very recently, I was listening to a podcast with Josh Waitzkin, um, <laughs> uh, speak of the devil and right, bring it back around. Uh, I think how he does something similar when it comes to uh, martial arts. Uh, he's a very accomplished martial artist um, that he's like thinks about the competition the day before um, and sort of gets himself in that headspace. And um, yeah, I don't I don't know where why I originally sort of started doing it. Um, sorry. That's OK, but it's a great visualization. I'm, I'm very uninspired with my answers. <laughs> You know, I think the important thing is that uh, that that it doesn't have to be something that you can always put into words. It can be something that develops through this constant practice routine and finding the things that work best for you, which I think would go back to what you're saying about writers discovering their unique voice and the things that bring it out of them. It, it has to come from within them in some way and then externalize. And this sounds like it's just part of a process that you developed as you were writing and it's become something that's worked really well for you. So I think there's a certain amount of just honesty there that, you know, it's either a, a tried and true or it's something you always have faith in or something else along those lines where it's not always about how you can define what it is or what it does. You can talk about how it works for you and that can be just as helpful, I think, for any writer. Yeah, I think I think, you know, learning, you know, learning your process and learning, like you said, the things that work and don't work, I think is really, really helpful. Um, you know, it's it's important to, I think, always be listening to that voice in your head, um, you know, and and, you know, just position yourself for success, you know, and, and part of that is you know, part of, part of that is learning what is, you know, helping you, you know, achieve the best, you know, writing you can, you know, you're capable of. Agree. Thank you. Um, I'm going to step back for a sec and, and let someone else ask another question. I feel like I kind of snuck two in there at once. So thanks for answering both of them. Great. Fascinating topic as well. I mean, it's historical knowledge that, uh, the melody and hook for yesterday came to Paul McCartney in a dream. So powerful ah, stuff go. indeed. Maybe Morpheus himself is weaving his <laughs> magical little plans in your mind. Brilliant. Kelly. So 
writers have to do, you know, a lot of research, obviously, to kind of realistically portray things for any medium that you write for. Would you say there's ever something that you've had to look up or get more familiar with that as as you were researching it, you were kind of like, what am I doing? Like, it's just a bizarre thing that you've had to look into to write it correctly. You know, it's funny, Greg Berlanti loves to tell this story. Um, I, uh, during Jack and Bobby, um, which is uh, the third show I worked on, so How I Met Greg, uh, I had to write a uh, teenage girl's slumber party. Um, <laughs> and I was about as terrified to write that as, as anything I've ever written. Uh, and I sent the writer's PA out to a Barnes and Noble to basically like pick up like every teen magazine that they had on the rack. Um, <laughs> and because I was like, you know, at the time I didn't have, you know, uh, daughters and, um, I, I didn't have access to teenage girls, um, you know, and to talk to. And so I would like, I was like reading like Tiger Beat. Um, and, uh, I was, I, it, it was like, I never thought I would do this. I <laughs> just, I'm very far afield from my normal, uh, expertise. Um, but, uh, scene came out pretty well um and uh i craig greg was tickled he was like you wrote this uh <laughs> you know um you know it it was um you know it was it was it was fun and it turned out great we had a great we, i remember being on the set and uh, us filming that and we we all had a really nice night i was like a, it was actually a what they call a fratter day it was a friday night that goes so late you go into saturday morning and uh, we were shooting on location and uh you know ed bakley jr played the dad um we just had a phenomenal time well yeah that's 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 actually hilarious as someone who was at one point a teenage girl and suffered through suffered through i say that now but enjoyed many of those slumber parties i can honestly say they are a bizarre animal um it was it was especially you know as a guy you're you're talking about something that's very 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 far afield from my experience yeah, I, I can only imagine. Well, thank you. That That is a hilarious and fantastic answer. Thank you. And great question, Kelly. I love that one, too. Thank you. I um, have to say, um, you brought up Greg Berlanti, and it's like these questions are being lined up. I mean, I couldn't have directed this better if I wanted to. And you've worked together for a number of years now, and obviously the whole Arrowverse started with Arrow and has turned into a huge Leviathan pun, pardon the pun. Um, did you ever in your wildest imaginings when you started the show, think that Flash and Legends of Tomorrow and Black Lightning and now Batwoman um, could ever have, have, have spun out of it? And how has that success um, made you smile inside? Oh, it's, you know, it's kind of amazing. Um, I, I have a very difficult time sort of processing success. I don't really know quite how to do that. I'm not wired for it. Um, so, but it, it, so it, it tends, success tends to manifest uh, as, um, as a feeling of, of surrealness. Um, and I can tell you it's phenomenally surreal <laughs> um, and, and really exciting. And we never, we never, ever, ever, um, you know, expected any of this to happen. 
Um, and it's, it's really exciting and, uh, kind of incredible. Um, especially when I consider like crisis, you know, that we're doing, uh, right now, crisis on infinite earths, like we are so far afield from, um, from anything, uh, I ever, uh, imagined we would ever get a chance to do. Brilliant. Brilliant. I am conscious of time and obviously we know you're a busy man. How many more questions do, do you have, Kelly? Uh um, I actually only have one more. And I actually only have one more myself. So I'm more than happy to wrap up after that and, and go ahead and, and uh, let you go on back to doing the great things that we love talking about you with, Mark. So <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun for me, guys, I have to say. You guys have asked really, really terrific questions. Um, normally, like you do these interviews and uh, you tend to get asked the same question over and over again, um, you know, and uh, this has been great. It's been asked me a lot of stuff I've never really talked about before. So thank you. We're all fans first and foremost here. We're not just the people here to, to write the story. We're literally, we love comic books. We love TV and movies. So getting you on has been a joy. So yeah, Seth, go for it. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this with a, a final one. I was noticing something really interesting that you're, you had a process of being co-showrunner on, on Arrow, uh, Legends of Tomorrow, and then gradually stepping down as showrunner to executive consultant. And, and that was just really interesting progression. It got me thinking about how you mentioned that you have daughters now and what comes next as you start looking at the fact that you have daughters who are growing up, you have an opportunity to either tell stories that are inspired by them or stories that you can, you know, tell that can speak to not only them, but to every other person that's either their age or going through what they're going through. Is there a legacy you start looking at now after you've had the chance to do so many amazing projects and accomplish something as big as the most recent crossover like Crisis? Is there something larger that's that's on the horizon that you say, you know, I'm, I'm working either towards this thing or towards this idea? And is that something you see at this time? And what can you talk about it with us? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know... I definitely see in terms of, you know, crisis being, you know, this this huge undertaking and arrow ending. I, I definitely see the end of a chapter. Um, I don't know what the next chapter is. Uh, I, I know a lot of what I don't want the next chapter to be, but I, I know very little about what I do want the chapter to be. Um, you know, my goal, quite frankly, is uh to you know bring arrow and the you know crisis in for in for their respected landings on a direct episode legends of tomorrow and then uh i'm gonna take a real stock as to where i am and what i want to do next um i i don't think in terms of legacy um i like i want to think it's a little too soon for that um but i i think you know, I've been thinking a lot about like, what do I want the next chapter to look like? Um, Cause this, you know, eight years of arrow, it's almost a decade of my life, you know, and throwing legends tomorrow, throwing the crossovers. It's, it's a lot of hours of television and it's a, it's a big chapter of my life. And, um, but now it's ready to sort of close, close the book on that particular chapter and, you know, think about, you know, just some other potential opportunities. I, one of the things I, I tended to do is I tend to juggle a lot of projects all at once. Um, 
And I think whenever I think about what the next chapter is, um, it it always involves fewer things. Understood. And not to place the legacy on you early, too early, or or to say that well, this is the end of you know, and and let's go ahead and put the closing. But I love the way that you describe the idea of the next chapter and. I was curious what that might look like, and it sounds like it's about bringing what you have right now to a close and then have that opportunity for some reflection, which is exactly. a exactly. really unique opportunity to be in. And I look forward to, to what comes next, and I'm really interested to see uh, your your directorial debut. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate uh, both sentiments. Um, you know, fingers crossed. Um, the directing thing will be very, very interesting. I've always been curious as to whether or not I can direct. Uh, and at least uh, I will get some answers to that question. <laughs> what forward. a show to debut on. Wow. With all, with all that cast. Incredible. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's good to direct for the first time with basically family. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of nice. That's the impression we all get as fans. It's like one big, huge Arrowverse family. Absolutely. Indeed. So um, my, my final question would be, is there a specific piece of writing or, um, you know, something that you've done that you would say if if someone was to see an example of Mark Guggenheim writing, I would be satisfied with them seeing or reading this one thing? Ooh. Great question. No. <laughs> um, uh, no. Uh, I, I don't, it's funny, I don't think I've written the thing yet that is quintessentially me. You know, I, I think it's it's always been like quintessentially-ish me. Um, so, no. And, and maybe, again, maybe that's sort of what the next chapter is, is like heading, you know, in that in that general direction. Um, but uh, I, I think it's one of the reasons why I think I probably feel like I still have things to say as a writer um, because I haven't quite, you know, quite found that thing that is, you know, the ultimate Mark Guggenheim script. Oh yeah. That's excellent though. Honestly, it's probably better that way once you, you know, if you have that that goal in the future. But yeah, thank you. No, thank you. The best is yet to come. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so uh, over the years, um, it's been close to a decade since I started doing this. And I'd like to close a lot of my interviews with this question because the responses I get vary so wildly. So obviously over the years, you've been on podcasts, you've appeared at cons and been interviewed and asked virtually every question under the sun but was there ever something in the back of your mind a question that you wished someone would ask you that they oh. never did what's wow. that question and what's that answer and not necessarily about your writing your career not necessarily about mark guggenheim the writer but mark guggenheim the man what do you want our fans your fans our readers and listeners to know about you i tell you that's such a great question um and what's going to happen is I'm going to get up in the middle of the night tonight with a start and be like, ah, that's what she said. <laughs> um, and because right now, and, and it might just simply be because it's, it's been a, you know, a very, very long day and an incredibly long six months uh, where my brain is at this point pretty much non-functional. Um, so it's great that I'm going to go off and direct an episode of television. 
Um, it's it. Whatever to that great question is, it is not occurring to me at the moment. Uh, but it will at 3 a.m. tonight, so I'll I'll call you then. You've got our uh, Skype handles, and we all follow you on Twitter. So if the answer comes to you in the form of a dream, like yesterday, yes. when all your troubles seem so far away, uh-huh. then just let us know. I absolutely will. I absolutely will. I, thank you guys so, so much. This really has been an absolute delight. Uh, you guys are awesome. And, and like I said, so polite with each other. <laughs> thank you. You've been working as a team now for so long that like, uh, it, it's, it's uh, second nature now, isn't it, guys? There's, there's a genuine love and admiration that goes on between everyone. We generally end a conversation with hugs and love you, and, and that's pretty much what I think we enter each conversation with, too. I can definitely say Steve is an inspiration. Oh, stop it. The hive mind. Yeah. The well, hive and, mind. And his lovely English civility, it just brings this just joyous tone. Uh, I, it, it, I tell you, I wish I had an English accent. I, I'm quite, quite, quite jealous. You be the first sure I'm British? <laughs> we have this inclination. Just just leave us to our desires, Steve. Just leave us to our desires. Exactly. My true name is Pennyworth. <laughs> Love it. Love it. In, indubitably. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, um, when I heard that, that we were getting you on the show, my uh, fanboy brain almost exploded. So thanks for your time and for joining us and just quickly let uh, our listeners and uh, readers of DC Comics News and Dark Knight News know where they can see more of you and give us your social media handles please. Sure, it uh, Twitter is at uh, mguggenheim. Um, I'm I've been very very active on there lately. I will probably uh, you know go through a uh, a digital detox while I direct because um, I don't think you know I should be like, you know, distracting myself with Twitter when I'm directing. But uh, and uh, on Instagram, it's um, just simply Mark Guggenheim. Thank you. And we'll close off with uh, Seth and Kelly. Where else can we, as always, find you guys? For me, you can find me uh, here on the DC Comics News podcast, where you can catch me with Kelly, Steve, talking about a lot of fun topics. And every once in a while, having a great conversation like we just did with Mark. If you want to look for me on Twitter, you can find me the number one and more singleton or on Instagram with my favorite pretentious name, Seth, the writer, and let me know whatever you want on either of those. Kelly. Uh, You can find me doing opinion editorial pieces for DC Comics News and also weekly on the podcast with these lovely gentlemen. And I'm also on Twitter at KelGainsWright. It's K-E-L-G-A-I-N-E-S-W-R-I-T-E. And all of those letters are where you can find me. And as always, you can catch my interviews uh, and reviews both on DC Comics News and at Dark Knight News, where I'm editor-in-chief. The easiest way to do so is just literally simple Google search for Steve j ray on twitter i'm l stevo el underscore s t e e v o you can catch the dc comics news podcast across all platforms apple podcasts stitcher google play and everywhere else you find good podcasts and across social media on youtube on tumblr facebook and Twitter at DC Comics News, capital D, capital C, capital C, O-M-I-C-S, capital N-E-W.
WS. And as always, uh, Mark, thank you so much. Kelly, Seth, what does everyone out there really need to do more of? Read. More. Comics. Thank you, Mark. Cool. Thank you, guys. So appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Take care, guys. Hey, thank you.